Hi, this is your host, Sophia Vidal, on the second episode of The First Cut, where we interview top medical professionals getting answers to your questions, which you might not have had the opportunity to ask, especially during this pandemic. I'm very happy to be joined by Hemant Pandit. Hi, my name is Hemant. Uh, thank you, uh, Sophia. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I have various roles, so I am an academic uh, clinician. I'm based at University of Leeds and at uh, Chapel Allerton Hospital. And my academic role is I'm head of the department. And on the clinical side, my interests are in osteoarthritis with patients presenting with hip or knee problems. And uh, I also have various uh, management roles, which probably will be may become apparent if needed. Thank you. Perfect. So what does an average day look like for you? Uh, there is nothing like an average day as such. It changed, I suppose, an average week is probably a bit better description. So on a Monday, every, yeah, every Monday morning, I have a clinic where I see patients and these patients are referred to me either by my colleagues or by my, by the patient's GP. And these patients will have varied hip or knee related problems. I see about 15 to 20 patients in the morning. Some of them I have seen before because they are follow-up of their problem or they have had an operation under my care or they are new patients. And then I would advise them about their management, plan the treatment or see how they are doing. Then Monday afternoon is my research stroke admin day. So I would be catching up with my paperwork or having various meetings with research or uh, management colleagues. Tuesday during the day is more of uh, more uh, is my management meetings in the morning where I'm cl a clinical director of my uh, clinical service unit. So I'm supposed to be, I shouldn't say supposed to be, I'm in charge of nearly 428 people. Wow. So it has a so it has a huge role in terms of making sure that patient safety, patient satisfaction, as well as staff resilience, finances, as well as any new guidance which comes from. Uh, so that goes in the morning. Will be various meetings with head of nursing, head of finances, that sort of stuff. In the afternoon is my research day, research time. So again, I'll have meetings with my PhD students or my postdoctoral researchers or my research nurses. And then Tuesday evening, Tuesday is a long day. So Tuesday evening, we have what we call as multidisciplinary team meetings. So these are attended by nursing staff, surgeon colleagues, radiologists, et cetera. And we discuss patients who have had or are going to have their operations at our hospital in my specialty. There are 15 of us and we will share each other's x-rays to critique them to see if they have done they have been done properly if not what are the issues etc and then we also discuss various policy decisions in terms of workforce in terms of again tender procurement finances whatnot wednesday morning 
uh, is my meeting with my research nurses group. And uh, along with that, we have various committee meetings which are for discussing new projects, any research, the research projects. And Wednesday at around lunchtime, we discuss, we meet uh, with microbiologist, with radiologist, as well as with other clinical nurses to discuss difficult patients who need difficult means they're difficult to manage. Uh, what should be the best management for them? Which antibiotics should be given? What can be, what other investigations are necessary? Does the patient need a type A implant or a type B implant, et cetera? And what should, how it should impact the theater scheduling? Every, so sorry. do you ever, sorry, do you ever see any um, very, very different or unusual cases in what you do? Yes, uh, we are, as Leeds is a tertiary referral center, see any big hospital, any NHS trust when it's in a big city, it, it plays two roles at the same time. We have a population of around 800,000. We also have a floating population of medical, stu I mean students, you know, there are probably 30 to 50,000 students from different uh, back, different specialities and different schools. So we are the primary, not primary, secondary caregiver to all these people. So if somebody has a, a broken forearm, I need to be able, not me, but my university, the Leeds hospitals will be able to fix it. At the same time, we are the tertiary referral center for whole of West Yorkshire, which is 2.5 million population. So if a patient has complex problems, which cannot be dealt with, say, at Harrogate or York or at Huddersfield, then those patients get referred to us. So for example, an infected joint or a tumor in the bone or something like that. So we have those dual roles. And when Tuesday evening is for secondary care discussion, well, Wednesday morning is for tertiary care discussion, which is more complex. And then Wednesday afternoon, again, there are a few management meetings with the trust senior colleagues. Um, and I think the previous gentleman whom you spoke with was Andy Breen. So yeah. Andy is also a clinical director like myself. He works in intensive care. So like Andy, there are 19 of us in total, and we would meet with the trust senior management where there would be trust level discussions. Leeds is probably the second, sorry, I think it's the biggest, if not second, at the least it is second biggest trust in the country, which has a budget of more than a billion per year. So it's a huge trust with large number of patients specialities and also large number of uh, large number of, I suppose, issues is the word, is the right word, because when you are big, you have big problems. So COVID, for example, has thrown really a spanner in the works. So yeah, so how is your, your, your daily week, like, like you're explaining uh, your day-to-day your -day life, how has that changed because of the pandemic? Unlike some of my colleagues, for example, Andy is in ICU intensive care, it has been a huge impact. Yeah. So what, what has happened is that for COVID, they have three different categories of um, uh, site, red, amber, green, more or less. So if you are going to be definitely exposed to COVID patients in your day-to-day -day management, then there is a red ward, which is like, if I get COVID as a patient, I would get admitted to that ward. At, on the other end of the spectrum is a green site, 
So for Chapel Allerton, where I work, is a green site. So any patient who is getting admitted at Chapel Allerton will have to go through PCR, lateral flow test, isolation if necessary, all those things. So we work very hard not to admit a patient with COVID symptoms or with COVID positive. Still, that is not possible all the time because tomorrow if somebody wants to walk into the hospital, he or she is going to walk into the hospital, it's like going to Tesco's. So having making sure that you have the necessary social distancing, the masks, the hand cleaning, the education, as well as the oversight of what's going on is one thing which I had to do with my role as clinical director. More importantly, the with COVID, a lot of, um, what should I say, redeployment of staff was needed. So we stopped doing non-urgent or elective operations for a significant period of time, but the patients are still under our care. So we needed to make sure that we could contact these patients. We At that time, when we were in lockdown, I don't know, first, second, we have had so many lockdowns now that we could not see the patients face to face. So it, we had to convert everything into virtual clinics. So that would be either doing, so either not only ringing the patient, but also having telemedicine at times. So, you know, you could see the patient and in certain specialties that is more relevant or more useful. So for example, in uh, we I look after four specialties. Although I'm orthopedic surgeon, I also look after dermatology, which is skin rheumatology, which is inflammatory conditions, and rehabilitation after stroke or neurological problems. So they're quite distinct from each other. So in dermatology, if I have a patch on my skin or say on my face, which could be cancerous, I can't wait for two years to be seen, but I don't need to be physically seen because I can be seen over like what we are having a communication via Zoom. So do you think that will be more common in the future since it might be a bit more easy for people to just have a little consultation from the comfort of their own home despite COVID beginning to abate? I think it is going to stay with us for the foreseeable future and it is a positive change. Uh, it does, um, at the same time, it does create some problems. So people really like Zoom or Teams meetings for first few months, but we don't realize the impact of isolation on a patient's mm -hmm. psychological well-being. So for example, this morning, today being a Monday, I had a clinic. I saw a patient who broke in tears, not because she had a problem with her hip or with her knee, but she just said that after my operation, which was done in elsewhere, I was not seen at all. And I really wanted to talk to someone. And I just feel that uh, I have been let down by the system. So, you know, people, and again, I see that with my staff members, some of my staff members said that their work had changed so much that previously that face-to-face -face or the personal contact you get when you see a patient is not there. So there are some unforeseen impacts mm. which can happen when you change your practice. But I think still going back to your original question, it will definitely be there uh, so that we can reduce the number of face-to-face -face appointments. It's very interesting, despite being a rheumatologist or if you're going into dermatology or rheumatology in the day, you still have to talk to patients for different problems that they might have um, 
mental problems and, and talk to them on that, that kind of human to human level, despite whatever you're doing in operation that day? Well, to tell you the truth, I think operation is probably the most straightforward part of my um, job. So right. I did not come. I did not complete what I my day to day my how my week looks. So on a Thursday, whole day I'll be in theaters. So I will oh. treat anywhere between three to five patients. Now, so these patients need their operation for a arthritic hip or arthritic knee or something related to arthritis, basically. And these patients then come first thing in the morning, I'm here at about 7.30, I'll see them, I'll discuss them, I'll operation to them, I'll mark their leg or arm, usually it's leg because I'm a lower limb surgeon. I make them give the, then we have a multidisciplinary group, we, we call it a huddle or brief or whatever before you start. So we tell what this patient has these problems. So for example, Mr. Smith may have diabetes or maybe his blood pressure is too high or whatever it is. So. Although my job is to make sure that I'm able to make his hip or knee better, I have to look at him as a patient, not as his hip. Therefore, it's a team approach. Clearly the most important person in the room is the patient and everybody else is equal. So like that, then we have to plan, we have to make sure that the theater kit is available, et cetera. And then after each operation, I will write the operation note, explain the follow-up, sorry, the post-operative management because patients' blood pressure may drop, patients may have bleeding, patients may have pain, various factors you need to sort out. And then I'll see the patient after each operation. So typically I would see the first patient after the second operation, if you see what I mean, because yeah. they have recovered a bit. And then you make sure that they are able to get up, get out of bed, get walking the same day, if that is possible. And the whole process will probably finish by about five o'clock. Then I'll take a ward round. So I'll continue till six o'clock and then I go home. I may get a phone call if the patient is unwell, if needed, but we have support on the ward. And then that brings me to the last day of the week, which is Friday. So Friday morning, I'll see my patients on whom I have operated the previous day. In all this, there is an integral part of my role is teaching and training. So I always have a trainee registrar or a training fellow. And I'm not going to be here forever, obviously. So it is important for me to make it sustainable. So a significant proportion of the operations that are done with me are on my list, may be done by my fellow, but I have to be physically and mentally there for each step because mm -hmm. it's my job to make sure that that patient is going to do well the buck stops with me but I have to train someone as well. So for these next generation of doctors what do you think are going to be the main issues for them? Um, I, I did quickly read the questions that Andy had shared previously and this is an important and a tricky question to answer. I think one issue is going to be the patient demand. So what you know we are we are living longer. We are as a population, generally speaking, you know, the age life expectancy is about 83 now, you know, uh, give and take a couple of years. And there are various factors which impact the life expectancy. So I don't know whether you are aware, but if you take a bus route from say, Weatherby to the center of Leeds, the age, uh, the life expectancy in Weatherby could very well be 83. But if you go to a 
to Hare Hills for want of a better area, the life expectancy is probably 73. You know, so there is a 10 year difference on the same bus route, which shows the impact of lifestyle, our day-to-day -day activities and our other habits, smoking and drinking and what obesity. So we are living longer, but we are having complex health issues and our health issues are getting more and more complex. So we call it polypharmacy. So most of the times the patient coming to me now, even now, is on six, eight, 10 tablets a day. So to manage that can be tricky. And the newer generation only is going to be more difficult. That's one bit to remember. The second aspect is patient expectations have changed significantly. So as a society, we want to be independent. For example, this morning, I saw a lady who is in her late, in early 90s, born in 1928. She, I, she needs a new joint replacement, but she lives on her own. And her family is, for whatever reasons, not interested in looking after her. They hardly communicate with her. So I have to find who is her next of kin, not necessarily by blood relation, but next of kin, close friend. I have to bring that person to see, you understand, that this lady is at a high risk of developing problems. As we get older, our problems tend to get more and more. It is suggested that the total amount of money that NHS will spend on me as a patient, if I was a patient in my lifetime, more than half that money typically gets spent in the last six months of my life. It is- Sorry, really could you repeat the money that- so so, so let's money? say that the total amount of money that the NHS is spending on me is say, let's say 10,000 pounds in okay. my entire career, entire lifespan. Out of 10,000 pounds, NHS will be spending more than 5,000 pounds in last six to eight months of my career life. So when I'm getting older or when I have a medical problem, like say I develop cancer, most of the money comes at the last phase of my life. That's not for everyone, I'm just giving you some numbers. Now, what is therefore happening is that we, you, the next generation will therefore be dealing with patients who are heavier for want of a better word. You know, people don't like to be called fat and that's not the right word, okay? So those who have a high BMI, so patients who are getting, who are heavier, patients who have complex medical problems, at the same time, they want to be independent and they are going to live longer. So uh, average age of a patient who attends the clinic with heart problems is 80. You know? So nowadays there are medications which can keep us alive, but you should not just aim to add years to your life, but you want to add life to your years. Health span you rather I mean. than lifespan, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that is going to be the key role that we and the next generation of medics need to play and prevention rather than cure. We really do not spend enough time or money or energy into explaining to the population the importance of prevention and how we can make ourselves better as a patient or as a population. And a lot of prevention that, is fairly easy things to do. For example, yeah. stopping smoking or keeping a track yeah. of your weight. Yeah, so, so I'll just give you one example about smoking, Sophia. 
we my, my bread and butter is hip and knee replacement so i wanted to see the impact of not smoking versus smoking on the outcome of joint replacement so you you know you will talk to various medics and you will get a plethora of uh, ideas experiences what what is different in what i do is i have chosen a route where i spend half of my time doing research while half of my time time doing the patient care now that gives me a completely different insight and it keeps makes i believe and of course i'm biased but it gives makes my life my job more interesting mm-hmm. rather than being a factory you know every day i'm doing the same operations yeah no? not monotonous at all you're discovering yeah. and yeah. pushing forward yeah you mix and match so one of the problems i wanted to know is what really is impact of smoking amongst various things that i looked at so what i was able to do was i was able to compare 75000 patients who used to smoke and have stopped smoking 8 weeks before surgery to 75000 patients who have never smoked in their life and another 75000 patients who continued to smoke before their operation this is nationwide data and what i was able to show is that the risk of heart attack stroke infection clot in the leg all those risks are significantly less if you have never smoked and they do reduce if you stop smoking as compared to continue to smoking if you see what i mean now that i am able to use in my clinical practice so this is what we call as bench to bedside so i have found something looking at the data and that data i can present it to the patients because most of the times my operations are not life saving operations the operations are improving the quality of life and there are always modifiable factors and non modifiable risk factors i can't change if mr smith is 80 years old i can't make him 60 but if he is bmi is high or he is a smoker i can tell him if you do this and this the chances of you developing a problem will go down by five fold three fold six fold and then it's up to him to decide what to do it would be difficult to say then that there's no causal link just because of the sheer size of the study that you've conducted what i wanted to stress is the future generation of doctors would be expected to do more research than what the current generation of doctors do and the curriculum is changing you know which is a good thing okay so i am probably an exception out of maybe there are say 1200 1500 orthopedic consultants in the country there are no more than 100 who do active research me being one of them because people are busy with their day to day clinical practice but your generation i expect at least 50% of you to do some active research So are you just given the opportunity to do active research or do you just have to make time for yourself is that is everyone given uh, the opportunity to do it everybody is given the opportunity that's a good question at the same time you have to grab the opportunity with both hands what happens is that it is it is far more um, time consuming and it's a longer route to the top of the tree to or to where you want to get to in your career 
Yeah, I am blessed. I have got everything that I could dream of. I am professor of orthopedic surgery in Leeds, in Oxford. I lead various committees. I have grant income of 10 million plus. I supervise 10 PhD students. I have a group of researchers, 20 plus people who are I'm responsible for and I drive things because I always believe that rather than changing life of two people, which I can do by doing an operation, I can change life of 200 people if I find something unique, okay? But I had to work hard on it and my training got prolonged. So you need to be prepared that you are not on a 100 meter run, but you are on a marathon run. And you need to space yourself because everybody will have ups and downs. And the other bit I noticed that many of us get excited by success. But yeah. as Winston Churchill said, really it is how you the enthusiasm with which you will work between two failures will decide the chances of your success so you know we should not feel let down or we should not feel oh i can't do this i have not got this i apply for 10 grants and i get two grants that means i have failed 80 percent of the times but i don't mind it i've got those two grants the person next to me hasn't got those two grants so that's the attitude and I'm pretty sure your generation will be far more resilient to this. If you didn't choose medicine as your career path, if you didn't choose medicine yeah. as your career path, what, what would you have chosen? <laughs> I don't know is the answer. Uh, yeah. I Originally, I wanted to be uh, an astronaut Okay. <laughs> when I was growing up and um, I wanted to be a mathematician. Those were the two areas that excited me, put it that way. So if you were to do medical school again, how would you change your approach to it? Um, I would be, I'm again, I'm different. I grew up in India. I yep. came over to UK 1995. So I had finished my medical education in India. And at that time, and I think even in the UK, to a certain extent, it's like that. It was more didactic. It was more, you know, I need to know 10 reasons of a murmur in a heart or 10 reasons of why I have fever, you know, and I have to recite it rather than make it logical. So if I go back, I would rather say, make it very logical and problem-based approach rather than just you know, in the book, I know that there are these 10 reasons. So usually a common problem is likely to be commonly seen. That's why it's a common problem. Rather than worrying about something which I may not see in 20 years time. I should be able to pick it up, but still. So I would have changed that. And the other bit would be, I would have had more clinical placements. I, I The way it was, it was a very traditional uh, teaching like I don't know what's the, I, I forget now what the system is in Leeds. I think it's a, uh, mine was very classical and I think mixed approach or a problem-based approach is much better. Do you think you'd study somewhere else apart from India? Cause you're practicing in the UK now. Uh, at that time you mean, no, it hasn't. I mean, you know, I have been, I think the training I received in India is as good as you would receive here or better if yeah. I am being blunt or truthful honest the patients that i used to see are far more in number and complexity and i had treated 
And when I came to UK, it was people appreciated it. You know, you give it a different perspective. My wife is an anesthetist. She worked in India. She worked in, she works in Leeds and she spent a year in US. So three different health systems. And you can always give something to the health system and you can learn something from the health system. So yeah, no, I won't worry about it now. So why are you practicing in the UK and not somewhere else right now? Uh, because I came over in 1995. I wanted to learn some new techniques and technologies. And then as life moves on, you tend to settle in the life. I yeah. would have, uh, I money was never an, uh, one thing I wanted to bring, I think into discussion is that the, the, the primary goal should be very clear in your head as, a, as you're growing up. And, and uh, I suppose the primary goal can change with time because one needs to be flexible. But I never had the goal in my head that I want to earn a lot of money. Okay. It, it, yes, I should have enough money to keep me and my family safe and happy. But it doesn't excite me whether I am able to earn half a million or whether I'm able to earn hundred thousand or quarter of a million. There is no difference in my mind so far. I can look after what I need, my needs and my family's needs. So don't go into the profession with the idea that I want to earn X amount of money. There are many other professions. I don't, I think one of your comments was, is this your vocation? You know, one of the questions you had asked. I think it has to be a lifestyle. If you are, and I'm not saying this for just for the record, this is how I believe in. Okay? You need to treat each patient that you see as if he or she is your family member. So every time I talk to a patient, I think in my head, if you were my brother, you were my mother or sister, whatever it is, would I offer this treatment to you? What would I do? And then you will be in a safe place. So you've talked about the wrong reason, reasons, which I completely agree with. What would you say the right reasons for wanting to go into a medical profession? Uh, uh, it, is, it, is, it is that desire to make, uh, to give something back to the society. Okay? And everybody in any profession will always or can always give something back to the society. I chose that this is what I feel I was able to do. And yes, at that time, my family, I'm the first doctor in my family ever, you know, and my family was very keen in India, in Bombay to say they wanted me to be a doctor. They did push me. You asked me a question about what I would do to my children. I mean, you know, would I encourage my children and I'll come to that. So I did my family, my mom in particular did push me to say, you know, I said, well, because you remember, I said, I wanted to be an astronaut or a mathematician. So I said, mom, I would really like to go into engineering or physics. This is what I like to enjoy. And she said, yeah, that's fine, but why don't you try medicine? She had that desire that her son should be a doctor. Okay. And I have really enjoyed every bit of my life. I have, if I go back 25 years, I'll still do the same, probably slightly differently. I'll probably still choose the same speciality. And coming to my we have one daughter, she's born and brought up in this country. And uh, she had the opportunity to study medicine, but I would never, I would not stop her if she wanted to, but I would not force it on her. I gave her as many opportunities if she wanted. So I used to travel a lot pre-COVID for teaching, training, everything. 
and she has been to sub-Saharan Africa, US, India, where she has seen different health systems. She has done some projects, but she studied marine biology and she's extremely happy in what she wants to do. So it's her choice. I think that's a really interesting way of going about making a decision is thinking about the patient as one of your own family. I think it also really comforts the patients themselves by saying, you know, like I'm looking at you as if you were one of my family and I'm making a decision based on that. I know for sure that I definitely feel uh, very secure and comfortable with that, that kind of decision being made in that way. So is this your only way of making a decision? Do you think of them as your family or do you have any other other ways of dealing with a, a decision when it's not clear cut? I mean, you know, it has to be, it is usually the course of action is a mixture of evidence-based. It, you have to have some evidence, okay? But evidence is not necessarily going to help you with every decision you make. What happens is that the evidence is provided for if you do this treatment for if the problem was X and Y. But in real life, the problem is not just X and Y, the problem is X, Y, Z, and A, B, C. So you can't really extrapolate that. Then you go by your own experience that you have to, usually as time goes by, as you get more and more senior, you see more, you have seen enough to understand if in this type of patient you offer this treatment, the chances of success. More importantly, the chances of complication are X. So, you know, so that has to be at the back of my mind. And then I have to also think, what would I do if this patient was my mother? Would I treat her or him differently? If I would, then I would always keep that at the back of my mind and explain. I say this to patients, they absolutely love it. I say, you are, because the patients also come with different expectations. Patients tell you, you know, they will say, Sophia, you know, my, again, let's go to Mr. Smith. He'll say, I have been told I need a new knee replacement. I want it. And then I try to tell him that, you know, you're not taking medication. You are heavy smoker. You have lung problems. You have diabetes. You're able to walk more than a mile whenever you want. Why do you need a knee replacement? I'm not treating your x-ray. And at that time I say, if you were my father, I can't imagine offering you a knee replacement. And the same thing I'll tell the patients on my Thursday list. First thing in the morning I say to them, I will look after you as if you are my family. I can't promise you nothing will go wrong. Sometimes things don't work out, but if it, something goes wrong, you are, we are in it together and I'll look after you. And that's the assurance that they need. Wow. So during med school, were there any defining moments that drew you to rheumatology, dermatology, et cetera? Um, you mean, why did I choose my speciality? Yeah, so so what, was there anything specific for you during med school or did you just no. choose the path? <laughs> no. no, I mean, you know, when I finished my medical school, um, it's very competitive in India because the number of seats are very, I'm not saying it's not competitive here, don't get me wrong, it, but it was extremely competitive. So, you know, yeah. there were, uh, um, there would be about, 200,000 people applying for 200 posts. So, you know, the wow. ratio was one to 1,000, okay? So, and even then when you get through the medical school, it's like a, there is a bottleneck as to which speciality you want to go to. I had to make sure that I can get into any speciality that I wanted to. 
So I could have walked into any speciality. But during the course of the action, I realized that I really, what you would develop is you would know very quickly what you don't want to do, put it that way, rather than okay. what you want to do. So it's like it was very clear to me that I was not interested in obstetrics and gynecology. It's not my field. I can't do that. I can't do pediatrics. Children, so would you say I it's like more a, a process of elimination rather than a yeah, section? More or less. I mean, you have to like things. Yeah. The other interesting bit is in any field you choose or one chooses, you will always find that the field um, is quite broad. You know, so in, for example, in trauma and orthopedics, I have now finally gone into area of only hip and knee arthritis, but I could be very well fixing bones. I could be doing ankles or I could be doing spine surgery. So there's so much area there and that's another beauty of medicine. It's quite a diverse field. Yeah. So in your profession, if you ever make some kind of mistake or you feel like you've done something that you shouldn't have done, is there any way that you deal with the emotion of toll of dealing with having some kind of regrets or anything like that? Of course. And I think everybody makes mistakes. Yep. Everybody. I have made quite a few mistakes in my life, in my career. And you, you of course, one gets upset. If you don't get upset, you are in the wrong profession. Although it may sound really difficult, but if it's the mistake which is going to have a huge impact on the patient or patient's life, you need to be very upfront with the patient. You know, and it's really, really easier said than done. Okay. But I have always found honesty is the best policy. I always go and talk to a patient if I have created a problem or something has not gone according to plan and then what needs to be done to rectify it if it can be rectified. And if it can't be rectified, it can't be rectified. So it's called duty of candor. Okay, so there is something called as duty of candor. So if I say I am supposed to do this, but inadvertently or knowingly, usually it is inadvertently, I made a mistake. It's my duty to tell the patient, this is what happened. This is what I planned. This is what happened. And this is what can be done. Or this is the implication that you may or you may or may not have. And that I have to then write a letter to the patient and to the GP and then follow it up and offer the patient, of course, offer the patient an apology to start. So all that is quite a straightforward, but very, uh, very, uh, very disturbing process because I think it I takes a lot to admit when you're wrong. Exactly. I think yeah. it takes a lot to admit when you've made a mistake and to apologize for it. Although it seems but, a simple process. Yeah, yeah, it is. But Sophia, you, you will, as when you start your career and your colleagues start your career, you will find that that probably is the most important thing. And the only bit I tell all my juniors, I have trained, I don't know, 100 plus medical sur surgeons in my career, easy, in different countries. And I always maintain, if you work with me, if there is any problem, you will tell me. Don't hide things from me, because that's the first bit. Because what happens is typically, as a junior doctor, you go to, go to the ward and you don't do X or Y. And then you try to hide it from your boss because you think he or she is going to shout at you. But it will only get worse you know, because he's eventually going to find out. So 
so i say i that probity is important so far you are you have probity and you are punctual everything else will fall in place and that's what i do with my patients i think that is the most important thing like you say if you work in an office and you make a mistake and you try and hide it there's not too many things that can happen but when you're dealing with patients when you're dealing with their health and their life it's it's crucial if you had 1 minute to give one piece of advice to a medical student what would it be enjoy every step you will always learn from every bit that you are doing there is nothing which is a bad job or bad day you will always have a be a sponge just get every experience that you can get and the last question i have for you is if you could pick any superpower what would it be <laughs> i don't know uh, that's a difficult one i, I don't know <laughs> the answer to that i i i believe in god i yeah. i do believe i believe in god and there are many decisions i make or many things happen in life at the right time because that was the right thing for me uh, probably all of us have a time in our life where the light is shown on us by the god means you know you are that's your best period golden period problem is most of the times we don't know when that period is happening you only notice it when the light is taken away from you so you know <laughs> learning you to appreciate things yeah, yeah exactly course. exactly that's great thank you so much for this You're today very welcome and all the very best in your career you are thank very thank you so good. much thank I, you i'm glad i was i hope i was helpful You've been more than helpful. Your insights have been invaluable and so interesting. You've really helped me out and I hope someone else too. So thank you for all your time. I know how busy your schedule is and it was really great talking to you today.